Evidence and Answers. Does our conscious existence end at death, or is there life beyond the grave? There have been numerous cases of people dying in the hospital room and reviving after a long period of time. These patients present fascinating accounts of events they experienced while clinically dead. What are we to make of these near-death experiences? Are they real? And what do they prove? You are listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Join Pat today for part two of his interview investigating the phenomena of near-death experiences with Christian scholar Dr. Gary Habermas. This entire interview, along with other interviews with Pat and other top Christian scholars, is available at evidenceandanswers.org. I'm sure you're going to find this show very fascinating. So let's join Pat now as he and his guest, Dr. Gary Habermas, investigate near-death experiences and their significance. That's good, yes. You have to have a healthy skepticism for a lot of reasons. And, and you know what? Even on the empirical evidence, the this-worldly evidence, Pat, I have to be skeptical. I have to ask, the, the atheist isn't wrong on this. I do have to ask questions like, well, is there some way you could have known the number on the top of that ambulance without seeing it yourself? Is there another way? I have to ask that question, too, because as an apologist, I want to know if this is really data or not really data. But since I've collected uh, like over a hundred evidential cases, now some of them are very, very mild evidence, doesn't even deserve an explanation, but some of them are very, very good. And I have over a hundred of those. By the way, there are other people who specialize in evidence cases, and they've collected, there's dozens of cases that are out there in the literature that a person can, you know, can discover. I mean, cases where the person's, uh, not operating, where they've been checked for heartbeat and, and so on, and they can give a 45-minute running description of everything that happened from, in one case, from drowning at the pool, and it's not the same little girl that I was talking about before, but 45-minute description of what happened in the pool, what happened in the ambulance, what happened getting into the hospital, what happened in the hospital room, and they can give a total full blow-by-blow description. Now, cardiologists today know that if you have a cardiac arrest, not any old heart phenomena, but if you have a real cardiac arrest, you are brain dead in 11 seconds. Now, you can come back from that. If they start your heart again, now you've come back from it. But if you have cardiac arrest, and, and I say brain dead, measurable brain dead what we can what can be measured if your brain as far as is known is not functioning from 11 seconds on then what you report that happened at the 30 second mark let's say that that ambulance happened 20 minutes after the fact that would be reported during the time when your body as far as is known humanly you know the heart's not beating and the person's brain is inactive, at least the upper brain function. Uh, EEG measures upper brain function. You say, well, see, it could have been lower brain function. Okay, well, tell me something. When the brain is barely functioning in a lower brain state, how come the most real verified experience you ever had happened at the lowest possible place of your brain operating? 
That's that a good point. Line. Yeah. So, so this, there's no doubt there's some intriguing evidence here. And I'm telling you what, it's having an effect on people because I use it in debates, I use it in dialogues, and skeptics, atheists, hardly have a response. Once they say the, ah, it's medicine or drugs or hallucinations or temporal lobe seizure, or once they say, oh, it's oxygen deprivation. Now, now some cases, by the way, they have medical notes on all these people, and they know it's not oxygen deprivation because they have an oxygen count, you know, things like that. The main thing is whenever they say this, oh, you're imagining it, you're lying, you're making it up, all these subjective responses cannot invent numbers on top of ambulances, what your mom made for dinner, what the blind person sees is the only thing they've ever seen in their life, etc. Yes, well, you know, if NDEs, near-death experiences, don't necessarily you know, prove conclusively there's a heaven or a hell, what exactly do they prove? Oh, great question. Your questions have been really good, Pat. What do they show? They show what J.P. Moreland and I, in our book Beyond Death, what we argue is consciousness after the initial moments of death. That's all it shows. It, let's just say that we've exhausted natural possibilities. You never did see a report because, in effect, we go back to the report you had, and the number on the top of the ambulance never appears anywhere in the report. Or, or just, you know, things like that. Let's just say, we, for the sake of the argument, we know that you did not see the number on the ambulance from talking to anybody or seeing a report, etc. And let's say they know when you fell inside the house, the ambulance themselves has to know how soon they got there after the call. The family estimates we called the ambulance seven minutes after it happened. So you add seven minutes. The ambulance was there in 22 minutes. So now it's 29 minutes. You can piece together a pretty close description of when this happened. Well, if again, it's a big if. But if you know the number on the top of the ambulance at that moment, then that's uh, consciousness beyond 29 minutes beyond near death and if you were you know if you had a cardiac arrest and your heart and or upper brain function is not working it could have been 29 minutes after cardiac arrest in which case that would be extremely evidential so we argue that what it's evidence of is consciousness after the initial you know indication of death and sometimes there's some of these. There's a few of them on record that are hours after death. But for the most part, they're minutes. And like I said, I gave an example of 45 minutes. I gave an example. The little girl, she was underwater. For her, she was with our heartbeat for 19 minutes. She was in the emergency room after that. So hers might have been, I don't know, hers might have been two or three hours later. So that's what we argue. It's evidence for consciousness after the initial stages of death. And some of it is for consciousness without measurable upper brain or heart function. And the reason that's, you know, but the reason that's important is the Buddhist, the Buddhist might say, amen. The Hindu might say, amen. The Jew might say, amen. The Muslim might say, amen. And the Christian says, amen. Well, then what good is this as an evidence? Because naturalism is the odd man out. Naturalists, of which, you know, the philosophical worldview from which atheists are subclasses, they're members of that group. 
they're the odd men out here. They shouldn't be able to have that. So NDEs, I often say, NDEs are not worldview specific. They can't tell you. I mean, somebody might argue a real odd one, but for the most part, NDEs cannot argue that Buddhism is wrong and Christianity is right. They, they don't make those kind of distinctions. But the kind of distinction they make is naturalism cannot be true. And in the recent apologetic wars, naturalism's the big bully on the block. Naturalism's the dominating worldview, at least in most Western universities. Not in the larger part of the world, but in most Western universities, naturalism's the bully on the block. And everybody says, well, you've got really good evidence for a resurrection, but I can't believe in resurrections. Those things don't happen. Well, now you can say, well, why shouldn't you believe in resurrection? You can't explain NDEs either. And they're both about the afterlife. And that's a devastating comeback. So what it does is it doesn't tell you who's right and wrong between Buddhists, Hindus, and Christians, but it tells you that naturalism appears to be very much incorrect. Uh, could it also demonstrate that there's an immaterial essence to our nature? You know, the Bible calls it soul and spirit, that we're not just physical, uh, material beings. There's something immaterial there in us. I think that's a great move. That's a great move. But, but again, Pat, how would that distinguish, you know what I mean? You can be a Buddhist or a Hindu. You can be a Muslim or a Jew and believe in an immaterial essence for human beings. Again, it's the naturalists who lose. I see. But well, I think you're right. I mm-hmm. think it's, you're right about the nature of persons. We learned some things about anthropology, too. Yeah. Well, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible address near-death experiences or have an account of anyone with such? Well, if not near-death experiences, at least near-death phenomena are reported in Scripture. I mean, just for a few examples, I gave the example earlier, and now I'm glad I gave it, because you you asked this question, and it doesn't look like I'm special pleading, but I told you about the case where um, you might say, oh, no, a horrific, you know how you had that feeling before a car accident, I won't avoid this, I am going to hit this car, or it's going to hit me. And some people are reported being up above their body and watching the crash from, who knows, 10 feet above the car. Well, in Acts chapter 7, you have Stephen, in effect, watching the whole thing before it happens. And at the end of Acts 7, Stephen has rushed out the door after giving testimony to his Christianity, and the text says he was a miracle worker, he was very powerful personality, people couldn't refute him, and they rushed him out the door, and they stoned him. And it says, it ends by saying, and the man who kept the coats was a man named Saul, who we know him better as Saul, later Paul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus. Before, apparently before the stoning, like before the car accident, before the stoning, Stephen has this vision. Now, what kind of vision? I mean, was it a near-death experience? I don't know. That's why I just call it near-death phenomena. But in his case, it would be pre-death phenomena. He saw this vision, uh, a heavenly vision, of Jesus on the right hand of God. And that came just before the stoning. So at least that's, that's similar. In Luke chapter 16, you have a case that sounds incredibly close to an NDE. You've got uh, the rich man of Lazarus, not to be confused with the Lazarus of John 11, 
the friend of Jesus. But this is the what most people think is a parable, in spite of the proper names. But there's a well, there's a rich man, and then there's Lazarus, and it says Lazarus died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, that's a really interesting description. He died. He was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. So what you find out is there's a process. He was carried. There was a very short trip. Like earlier I talked about, well, yeah, but you were only dead for 32 seconds, and for all we know, judgment comes at 48 seconds. And maybe one of your listeners is going, no, it happens immediately afterwards, because Hebrew says it's point on the man once to die and after the judgment. But after that, the judgment, two weeks later is still after. I mean, Luke 16 says, carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. How long did that take? Did that take five seconds, five minutes, or five hours? You know, we're not told. But he's carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. He hollers over to Abraham and asks for permission to go back to tell his brothers. And he says, I had an experience 14 years ago. And twice he says, whether out of the body or in the body, I know not which. And he says, I was caught up to heaven, and I saw things that it's unlawful for a man to utter. So I'm, you know, I'm not going to repeat these things. But he says twice, whether out of the body or in the body, I know not which. And some commentaries, prior to all this interest in NDEs, some little commentaries have made comments that if you do the chronology, this works out very closely to when Paul was stoned and left for dead at Lystra. So his case might have been close to Stephen's. But, but he says he visited the third heaven, and whether out of the body or in the body, he doesn't know which one. So I'm not claiming those are NDEs. That's why he's very carefully said before I answer the question, NDE phenomena, NDE-like phenomena. All of those are in Scripture. So. Yeah, you know, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 4, for me, is the most disappointing verse in the whole Bible. Where <laughs> he says, and I heard things, you know, after he went to paradise, I heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. You know, I'm sitting there going, oh, no, tell us. Tell us what's up there, you know. Why do you think he says things that he was not able to tell us what's up there? Now, interestingly enough, there's more than one possible response. I'll tell you what. First of all, he does tell us some, something, right? He says he was caught up to the third heaven. And it went in Philippians chapter 1, he says to live as Christ and die as gain. Then two verses later, Philippians one twenty three, he says, I prefer to die and be with Christ, because that's better by far. That sounds very much like people who say, I'm not afraid to die. In fact, in Paul's case, he says, I prefer to die and be with Christ. So he does tell us some things. But how do we know Paul remembers everything he saw? In a lot of NDE cases, a lot of NDE cases, the people say, well, I was with this light. And I don't know who the light was. It might have been an angel, might have been Jesus. They, they don't know. They say, I've, I've been with this light. And I took that opportunity, and I asked a question about the secret of the universe. I mean, who knows? Maybe they said, what religion's true, or who are you? Are you the religious founder? And they'll say, this is odd. But a lot of NDE accounts, they'll say, and I got the answer. And it all seems so simple. And I said, yes, that's it. But I don't remember what I asked, and I don't remember what the answer was. <laughs> oh, no. So, 
You hear that a lot in NDE cases. Now you say, well, yeah, but now, see, you're contradicting your own rule. You said you don't accept anything up there because there's no evidence. No, I don't. I don't accept that. I wouldn't cite that for anything. I wouldn't cite that for the building blocks of heaven and hell. I wouldn't cite that for what it's like. But it is very nice anecdotal evidence when these people say, and you know what, darn, I don't remember the question, I don't remember the answer. That's just amusing. It doesn't prove anything, but it's amusing. Oh, that's fascinating. It is. Well, you know, to summarize it, you're saying NDEs prove that there is, you know, give strong evidence that there's consciousness after physical death of the body. Mm -hmm. What is the strongest proof that there is life after death of the physical body? Well, you know what, I've told people, I, I said it earlier in your program here, that because I teach apologetics, I get all kinds of people writing to me and have said, you know, have you found, now they found the acts of Pilate. Do you think they found the acts of Pilate? What's that? What's this? What's, and of all the evidences I've checked out over the years, oh, they found Noah's Ark. They got this. They got that. They found new manuscript for something. Whenever someone tells me something, I check it out. And of all the major things, um, there's some exceptions, but of all the real big ones, the only ones I've checked out in general that I've found to have some factual basis, two things, NDEs, near-death experiences, and the Shroud of Turin. I think there's some arguments for the Shroud of Turin, although I find arguments for the NDEs to be better. But I say, whenever I talk about the Shroud or whatever, I'll say, the evidence for the Shroud is good, but the historical evidence for the resurrection is better. I would never trade the historical evidence for the resurrection for the Shroud information. And I tell people, here's, here's why resurrection, here's where resurrection beats NDEs. Resurrection does tell us about worldviews. NDEs don't. NDEs tell us about the real world and that there's consciousness after death in the real world, because you can see the number on top of the, the ambulance, you can see what your mom made for dinner. You can see things in the real world. But it's not worldview specific. So the NDEs, religiously, help you with pretty much a couple big questions. Is there any consciousness after death? Yes. And who's the odd man out? Naturalism. But what's the resurrection do? The resurrection is so powerful, as Stephen Davis, a well-known philosopher, says, the resurrection is so powerful because apparently skeptics cannot admit it and still stay a skeptic. That's the key. If you have, who's been resurrected? Jesus. Anybody else? Not as far as we know. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the person who thought he was the Son of God and thought that you could only get to heaven through him. Ah, he's the only one who was raised? Yeah, as far as we have evidence for. Huh, wow, that's inconvenient. (laughs) So now you have to disprove the resurrection. So I do think the resurrection has major advantages that NDEs or the Shroud of Turin don't have. Yes, you've researched this topic thoroughly, got your doctorate in it, you've debated it from top scholars throughout the nation and the world. How has it stood up to the test of these skeptics and the challenges that they present? Well, Pat, wonderfully. I was just talking to an agnostic just before you and I did this interview, and I told that person, I said, you know, you know the evidence for something is really, really good, when 
here's a couple overall comments. You know the evidence is really good when more scholars believe something happened to Jesus after his burial than those who think nothing happened. All right, here's another way you know something's going on. Skeptics, people who call themselves skeptics, call themselves agnostic or whatever, and they're recognized by the skeptical community. They're popular with the skeptical community. And yet they still say, like uh, Dale Allison, the skeptical New Testament scholar who calls himself a cryptic deist, he's a skeptic, and yet, I'm paraphrasing him, but this is pretty close to a quote. He's a skeptic, and yet he says, quote, I mean, it's very close to a quote, I have no doubt that after his crucifixion, Jesus appeared to his followers alive. Now, is that skepticism? So I guess what I'm saying is, if the majority of scholars today believe something happened to Jesus after his burial, and if a skeptic like Dale Allison says, I'm a skeptic, and I believe Jesus appeared to his followers, then we've moved the line of skepticism way over to the right. Those are pretty conservative views for a skeptic. I think what's so good about the resurrection evidence is I say over and over again, kind of a one-liner, you can take the skeptic's New Testament. You can throw out the verses they throw out. I don't recommend it, and that's not what I believe. But you can throw out the verses the skeptics throw out, accept the verses the skeptics accept, and still have enough data to show that Jesus was raised from the dead. In other words, you can, if you can witness to a Mormon with the Book of Mormon, how about witnessing to a skeptic about the resurrection by using the quote-unquote skeptic's Bible, the one that was, you know, scissors and paste was taken to it. That's how strong the evidence for the resurrection is. Yeah, well, as we close the show, Gary, tell us what difference then does the resurrection make? The difference make the resurrection makes all the difference. I, I was a skeptic. I told you, I, I'm still not sure to this day where I was vis-a-vis Christianity when I went through my 10 years of doubt. I sometimes wonder did I cross the line away from Christianity, and only by God's grace am I here, you know, doing what I'm doing. But for me, the resurrection, unlike NDEs, unlike the Shroud of Turin, the resurrection does something that none of the rest of them can, because it tells you that there is a heaven. It tells you that the one who was raised is the only person in the history of religions who claimed to be the Son of God and claimed that what you did with him determined where you spend eternity. I mean, we don't realize that almost no founder of a world religion claimed to be God. <laughs> Jesus said he was deity, but the other founders of world religions didn't say, I'm God. And But Jesus had this extraordinary claim, and he just happens, quote-unquote, to be the only one who's raised from the dead. If I were a skeptic, that alone would make me say, I'd better really pay attention to this guy. And, and that's the main thing that the resurrection does for us. Yes, and you've been listening to Dr. Gary Habermas, Distinguished Research Professor at Liberty University. He's written some of the best books here on the resurrection. Gary, tell us about some of the books you would recommend on the topic of the resurrection. Well, for popular consumption, I guess probably the one I'd recommend the most is the one I co-authored with Mike Lacona, L-I-C-O-N-A, and it's entitled The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. It's published by Kriegel. It's not quite been out 10 years. Um, if somebody wants a little more advanced argument, you know what? I'd recommend that people go to my website, GaryHabermas.com. That's H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S, all, all written together, no periods or spaces. 
GaryHabermas.com, and I have a whole lot of material on my website on near-death experiences, actually. But I have a lot of material on my website on the resurrection and essays they can see on the resurrection, responding to critics, arguing for the resurrection. It's all right there. So that's probably the kind of a one-stop. I say one-stop shopping, but nothing's for sale on my website. It's all for ministry. So, and you got a great book you co-authored on the. What Happens After Death as well. Tell us a little bit about it. It's called Beyond Death. Unfortunately, it's out of print in its popular title, Beyond Death. Whiff and Stock has picked it up, and I'm very grateful to them for doing it. The book's a little more expensive than most books, but it's co-authored with J.P. Moreland, a very well-known Christian philosopher. And uh, he and I did that book, oh, it's been a while now, probably close to 15 years ago. I think it's 1998 is the copyright date. Fantastic. Well, folks, you've been listening to Dr. Gary Habermas, Distinguished Research Professor at Liberty University and the Chairman of the Department of Philosophy there at Liberty University. Gary, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Pat. I enjoyed an excellent interview, excellent questions, well prepared. This concludes the series on near-death experiences with Dr. Gary Habermas. If you missed any part of these interviews, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to the series and enjoy other great resources right there on the site. Pat is the director of the Pacific Apologetic Center, a subsidiary ministry of the Bible Institute of Hawaii. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by these shows, please support Pat in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Aloha and join us again next week as Pat and his friends continue to give more reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. (laughs) 